from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. Floor's lava. Floor's lava. Let the wild rumpus start! This hour on Studio 360, we are talking about how children play and the power of unscripted make-believe for kids. So first, forgive me this brief Andy Rooney-ish rant, but back in the day, more of us really were free-range children. As a middle school kid, I'd leave the house for hours with no particular destination in mind and no pre-approval from my parents, alone or with pals, wandering, imagining, inventing games, getting filthy, getting spooked sometimes. I experienced a sense of freedom on those outings that I wouldn't have if my mom and dad had me on the cell phone leash. And I think, as a result, I'd be a less interesting and resilient adult. I am approaching the wall of blocks to climb up it to get to the slide. There's a bunch of children. Wow, it's so long! That is Paul. We're out on Governor's Island, this 172-acre park in New York Harbor, tucked between Manhattan and Brooklyn, accessible only by ferry. I am waiting in line behind some crazy people. Now, I have a piece of cardboard to make me go faster down the slide, but I'm not talking to you. We can see the Statue of Liberty over there to the west, and you can hear the the helicopter tours flying overhead. We're in a section of the island called The Hills, and Paul is giving us a first-hand account of what it's like to go down this zigzaggy 57-foot-long slide, which is the longest slide in New York City. I'm placing my cardboard on the slide. I'm getting on the slide. And I'm going. That's all from Paul's slide. You may have guessed that Paul's not one of our radio professionals. He's 10, and he's got a sister cavorting nearby, Romy, who is 7. Paul and Romy's mother is Alexandra Lang. She's an architecture and design critic whom I've known since I was an architecture and design critic years and years ago. And she's the author of the excellent new book, The Design of Childhood. Her book looks at five different realms of design as they concern children. Toys, the home, schools, cities and towns, and the playground. One of her favorites is this place, practically brand new, the Slide Hill on Governor's Island. 
We're sitting by Slide Hill, which is kind of topography and playground combined into one. And it has four slides. Um, one of them is the longest slide in New York City, but they're kind of, they're, they're made part of the landscape. It isn't like a slide on a playground um, that's plastic and over that squishy stuff. Um, you can get up to them all different ways, on rocks, on wood, on paths, and um, there's a grove of trees around them that will eventually shade them. Governor's Island was a military base for more than two centuries, but over the last dozen years, it's been transformed into this eccentric and really wonderful public park with 19th century buildings and picturesque walks and rolling hills and cultural events, all of it 10 or 15 minutes across the water from the city proper. The Trust for Governor's Island hired the Dutch landscape architecture firm West 8, led by a man named Adrian Heuze. And their proposal was to create topography, was to create hills to, among other things, give people an amazing view of the Statue of Liberty. So what is so great about this particular playground? I feel like it really gives kids a little bit more of um, a nature experience, even though we're in an urban environment and even though, you know, this was designed by a landscape architect, um, because you have that feeling of like running up a hill, um, almost like you have when you're sledding and you, you know, you can sled down whoosh, but then it's a little bit of a labor to get back up the hill. So it kind of works kids harder. They have to figure out their own route and there's just like more parts of the experience are fun and more parts of the experience are play. And, and, you know, it's kind of dangerous looking, right? <laughs> I mean, these, these great big uh, roughly quarried rocks, stones, uh, you know, you, you climb up to get to the top of the slide. Uh, I mean, it probably isn't dangerous, but it looks rougher and more adventurous. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and it and it is somewhat more adventurous. One of the things that um, developmental psychologists have started to talk about in terms of children's play is how if children are always given a slide or and a ladder to the slide that has the same distance between the rungs and is optimized um, for easiest climbing, they don't learn the climbing skills that they used to, and they don't learn the climbing skills that you get in this kind of variation where you can go up a path or you can go up, um, you know, boulders, or you can go up a kind of wooden Jenga-ish section. So kids need to have the opportunity to make those decisions, like what can I do, and what's hard now, and what's going to be easier later. And there's enough variation in what's given to them to play on that they can have that feeling of mastery and that there's another challenge ahead of them. Right. And there, there are four slides here, I guess, of, of yeah. ascending difficulty. Yeah, yeah. There's what my kids would now call a baby slide. There are some, you know, in between slides. And then there's this really big slide. So now with the baby slides, they run up it. Um, and they would never go down it because that's not fun anymore. But, I mean, you see, there are kids that are just going up and down and up and down over and over um, and kind of hollering as they come down because it's really fast. That's the other benefit of the metal slides. They do get hot. You know, you, you know, you do have to be mindful of that, but you can go so much faster than you can on a plastic slide. And, and again, it's built into this hill, and the hill has, you know, wild grasses and, and trees. It's Again, we are in the middle of New York City. It's a designed park, but it's a suggestion of 
wildness. Yes. Yeah, and that's definitely part of the design strategy that West 8 put in out here. I mean, it's a wildflower garden. It's wild grasses. Um, Everything has been optimized to deal with kind of a salty climate because there's salt spray from New York Harbor all around it. And so the idea is that you can lose yourself a little bit in the landscape the same way you can, you know, kind of lose yourself in play. For her kids, it's not entirely play. They also do recon for her. We've been going to a lot of playgrounds and like play testing them for her to write so she can write about them in her book or getting some type of toy that she can write about. Uh huh. Does she pay you for that work? Because it sounds like you're doing research, really. No. No. No? Hmm. She doesn't. I wish. So, Alexandra, um, when did playgrounds uh, show up? When we kind of invented the idea of childhood? Well, yes, there, there's a lot of debate about when, mo- let's say, modern childhood was invented. But in terms of... 1883, okay. <laughs> no, in terms of playgrounds, they first came um, to Boston in the 1880s. Some of the, the women who ran settlement houses in Boston saw what were called sand gardens in Germany, um, which were basically like a vacant lot filled with sand um, that would be installed in an urban setting, often in the summer when kids were out of school and needed something to do. So she brought this idea to Boston and put a sand garden in, in, in a poor neighborhood, um, and it was a big hit. And so the settlement houses began to see that as part of their agenda, you know, helping immigrant families, they also needed to help the children and give them a place to be, a place to play that wasn't the streets. Um, And so the sand gardens then in the early part of the 20th century um, led to public parks that had playgrounds with actual equipment, you know, often metal equipment. Some of those parks um, would have a park house. They would have exercise classes. There was really a whole charity movement towards play um, and getting children um, active in cities as a way of often of keeping them from... um, I don't know, dirty tricks. <laughs> well, right, and, and there, if, if your whole thing is playgrounds of a certain design sort, you fall into the problem that, that urban renewal people fell into in the 50s and 60s that Jane Jacobs had to say, wait, stop, it's okay as it is. Don't tear it all down and make it a big tower. Stickball is good. Yes, yeah, exactly. And actually it was funny. So, I mean, the, the playgrounds that... Um, a lot of people, I would say, especially baby boomers probably grew up with, had metal structures over asphalt. And, you know, you really very rarely see those anymore. But I went up to Van Cortlandt Park to the Cloisters with my family recently, and we ran across one of those climbing structures that was probably put in by Robert Moses in the 1940s, just a metal three-dimensional grid. Jungle gym. Yes, a jungle gym, classic jungle gym. Um, And, of course, my kids went nuts for it. And I took a picture and posted it on Twitter. And I got, like, 200 responses because there's an amazing sort of waves of nostalgia when people see childhood objects. And you really don't, like, I mean, that jungle gym should be in a museum. Like, it is an important piece of design. Um, And... 
there isn't so much wrong with it. I mean, I, I know, like, I know because I've done this reading why they got rid of jungle gyms over asphalt. But on the other hand... Because, what, were, kids knocked their heads on, against um, the bar and... Yeah. In the early 1980s, they put in a series of safety regulations in, in response to a set of lawsuits for, among other things, kids falling off the top of slides sideways. And they really focused on the distance of falls because that was where kids broke their arms or, you know, in more terrible cases, broke their skulls. So that's why you almost never see play equipment now that's not over wood chips, sand, um, or that those squishy tiles that we have on most of the New York City playgrounds. And that's also why um, most climbing structures don't go straight up and down. Like from the top of one of those jungle gyms, you could fall straight down for six or seven feet. And if you look at climbing structures today, um, they're, you know, they're designed so that if you fall, you're you're likely to hit something else on the way down that you can grab onto. So you don't have that kind of straight shot down. Um, so, I mean, these are smart things. Like, we don't want children to get hurt. Yes. But on the other hand, I think now we've gone too far and children aren't getting hurt, but they're also not being challenged. And then they don't want to go play. Right. Again, speaking of my baby boomer youth, are there still uh, merry-go-rounds, which in retrospect probably were kind of dangerous? And, I was definitely afraid of them. And teeter-totters or seesaws? Well, um, that kind of equipment, what do they call it? They, they say it requires a larger fall zone. So you have to have a larger area of soft surfacing material around a merry-go-round in case kids, you know, let go and spin out. Um, and as playgrounds get compact, as people start thinking about maintenance, they want to group all of the equipment closer together. They can get more on the playground pad if they don't have equipment that requires that larger fall zone. So they take out merry-go-rounds and seesaws. But in fact, those merry-go-round and seesaws have important um effects for physical development. There's something called the vestibular system, which is your inner ear, which is about balance. And so kids need to have that challenged in order for it to develop. So they need to be able to spin. They need to be able to run, you know, like run across the seesaw and let it slowly. They're like physics experiments too, Yeah, exactly, exactly. So they don't have the opportunity to use spinny things, and that makes their balance develop more slowly. And so in the over-regulated nanny states of Europe, they have more of those things? They do have more of those things. Um, you know, one of the things I was interested in was, you know, why why do all the playgrounds in Brooklyn look the same? Like, oh, we're in this new neighborhood. Let's go check out the playground. But, oh, that's the same piece of equipment, just with different colors. So um, it turns out the Parks Department orders things from about three different company catalogs um, because that equipment has already been means tested and they know it's up to standard. But so I called one of those companies, Compan. And I talked to a woman who heads up their research department there, and I was like, you know, why isn't the equipment more challenging? And she said, oh, no, we, you know, we've read all the studies about risk and what, you know, how kids need risk and spins and all of that. And actually, you know, we have all this equipment that nobody, like parks departments in America won't order, you know. So Compan Parks in um, Sweden, say, are ordering from a different part of the catalog, and she sent me to YouTube to look at videos of these things that spin around and have ropes off the end with, like, a little seat on it um, so kids can spin each other, and they spin out. It's almost like, you know, a carnival ride. But in risk-taking America, we don't have that. They They don't order it. Like, it's in the catalog. Because they're worried about liability. Because they're worried about liability because the fall zone is very wide for something like that. So, I mean, she was kind of saying, don't don't blame the catalogs. Right. And as a mother, do you ever, I mean, you get, of course, why parents, 
you know, don't want their kids to break their arms or worse. Yes. But are you ever, like, as you have become an ideologue for a risk, are you ever torn? Um, Yeah, of course. I mean, it's hard to let your kids go. You you want them to be independent. You want them to have their own minds. But then you see them, you know, up, you know, on a big rock in Van Cortlandt Park, and you think, you know, is she going to fall? Like, does she know what she's doing? Um, And that's hard. But if you don't let your child take that risk, they don't get the reward of the satisfaction of getting up that rock. Couldn't agree with you more. Um, uh, One sees some playgrounds, contemporary playgrounds, where, you know, instead of just a jungle gym, it's a rocket ship, or it's instead of a slide, it's a dinosaur. Yeah. Uh, That's, uh, which always seems a little cheesy to me. Uh, uh, Those are controversial, right? Um, yes. In, the, in your fancy design world. Yes, I, I agree. It's cheesy. No, it's just it's just not necessary. I mean, kids, it's actually, it, you know, it goes back to, you know, kind of cardboard box play even. Like, why, why tell a kid, like, what the box is? Why tell a kid what the climbing structure is? Let them decide what it's going to be that day. And if you put little wings and a point on it and say it's a rocket ship, then, I mean, they can ignore it, but they may only feel that they can play a space game in that piece of climbing equipment and who needs that i mean that in a way seems to me to be kind of subscribing to some adult idea um about like what kid things look like and kids are fine with abstraction like the their imagination fills in the blanks yeah uh you in the book create this typology of the sort of forces at play in playground design and the abstractionists being one of them. So the abstractionists are people like Osama Noguchi, the sculptor, who um, it turns out spent about 60 years of his art career trying to build a playground that kind of, again, lo- you know, looks like abstract sculpture. As his furniture and his lighting do too. Yes, yes. So he started designing them in the 1930s and they were quite influential because they were um, exhibited at MoMA. Um, they were in all the magazines. Um, a lot of um, important people like Thomas Hess, who was the editor of Art in America at the time, backed them. But he couldn't get one built in New York. He tried and tried. Um, There's one Noguchi playground in Piedmont Park in Atlanta. Um, And I went on a journey to Sapporo in the north of Japan to see his last work, which was the one place that a really giant Noguchi playground was made. And that has, it has pyramids, um, it has slides that look like mountains, all of these things that are just really aesthetically beautiful, but are also challenging play experiences. I mean, it was, honestly, it was a bit tragic that I couldn't bring my children with me because of school and expense, but I played on all the play equipment by myself in Japan and it was pretty awesome. Should we get uh, Paul and Romy back and see sure, uh, and, and get there? Yeah, I see uh, Romy right here. Okay. Uh, so, uh, ha, ha, Romy, Paul. Hello. Uh, so you've been coming here your whole lives. Basically, yeah. yeah. Pretty much. And and uh, but this this these slides in this playground weren't here when you were little, right? No, no. they're very new. Yeah. They they're pretty new. Made it a couple of years ago. They like completely like there's a couple hills and they completely made them these little mountains of fun and is it different than just going to a, like a playground in prospect park or yeah. how so um well i just feel like there's a lot of more wildness like there's that whole hill over there yeah. like wildness like actually scary or 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 just 
more fun. It's more just more fun. There's a lot grass. more plants, and it's yeah. less kind of like trimmed down with like cobblestone sidewalks right. and more crazy. Yeah. Do you go to playgrounds elsewhere? Yes. yes, definitely. Yeah. And what do you like on those playgrounds? There's this one playground down in Pier 6 that has like a sphere, sphere climbing structure. It's really cool. How about you, Romy? Um, well, there's also this park in Pier 6 that only has swings that I like. Um, uh, thanks for talking to me. You're welcome. You're welcome. And Alexandra, thank you very much. Thank you. Alexandra Lang's terrific new book, The Design of Childhood, is just out. Zoe Saunders and Tommy Bazarian produced that story. Coming up, a different little girl introduces us to her playmates. Vegetable is kind of like a gun, but he's orange and he shoots yellow bullets. But he can shoot anything. He can shoot ice cream. And the bullets are candy bullets. What kids can learn from inventing imaginary friends. That's next on Studio 360. Summer, school's out, outdoors, beckons. So today's Studio 360 is about fun. Like how, for instance, somewhere right now at a picnic or a dog park, somebody's pulling out a Frisbee to toss around. Rock and roll aside, the Frisbee's one of the few goofy, exuberant fads from Eisenhower America that's had a serious long run. I mean, you don't see a lot of kids these days hula hooping. But in fact... The Frisbee's history goes back a lot further than the 1950s. We asked Paola Antonelli, who is the senior curator of architecture and design at the Museum of Modern Art, to explain why it took so long for the Frisbee to take off. From a design standpoint, the Frisbee is quite straightforward. It's made of injection-molded plastic, and it's a platter of plastic that is ribbed and then piped at the edges in order to maximize its aerodynamic performance. So it really is one of the simplest forms of entertainment and at the same time, one of the most engaging. The story behind the Frisbee is really curious. One would never imagine how the Frisbee was born. It brings us back to the 1870s, believe it or not. There was a baker named William Russell Frisbee, and this baker owned a company in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and made pies. And what he started doing is he started printing in relief the name of his family bakery at the bottom of the aluminum dishes that contained the pies. Mr. Frisbee's pies were sold throughout Connecticut and also in many universities and colleges. And the students found another use for the tin pans and started throwing them and catching them and just playing with them in the air. Quite a few years later, in California, in 1948, there's a building inspector whose name is Walter Frederick Morrison who had a partner, Warren Franchoni. They were both flying saucer enthusiasts. And what they had done is they had manufactured a dish, basically, a plastic dish that one could throw and then catch. 
They had called it Pluto dish because they wanted to give it this flying saucer flavor. And they brought it to the Wham-O company. And two years later, the first Wham-O Pluto platter was introduced in the market. At that point, Morrison and Francioni were doing a tour in various university campuses. They heard stories about students playing with this tins and just catching them and calling them frisbees. And the word frisbee came back. Testimony to the ubiquitous nature and to the importance of this object is that its brand has become a noun, like uh, like it happens when objects are really pervasive. So the frisbee is the frisbee, even though it's another brand, and even though the trademark should be respected, but people just don't because the frisbee belongs to everybody. Paola Antonelli is the Senior Curator of Architecture and Design at MoMA. This week's show is all about the invention and design of fun, especially by and for kids. When I was a little kid, three, four, five, I had a whole bunch of imaginary friends. The main one, I remember, was called Robbie Dobby. There was also Cracker Pin and Jimmy the Cat, later a poodle called Jean Vieve. I practically could have populated a book. And now, as an adult, I I do populate books with make-believe characters who I know aren't real but do feel pretty real to me as I'm writing about them. Psychologists are looking at childhood imaginary friends to try and figure out what they're good for. Jessica Benko talked with one of those researchers, Marjorie Taylor at the University of Oregon. When I first started doing work on imaginary friends, I kept wanting to find the typical imaginary friend. And it was frustrating because every study, almost every friend was different from every other. It's, they could be a little tiny fly on your shoulder, they could be a giant penguin, they could be army of Martians, etc., etc. I saw a drawing of yours that had a bunch of your friends on it that you drew, and you put all their names. So who are all these guys? These are some of my imaginary friends. This is Maxine. I talked to her when she was seven, about to turn eight. Can you tell me a little bit about them? I like Ben. He's like an eyeball about this big. About an inch wide. He has no arms and legs, so he just rolls around, and he's really friendly. I like Grabobby. He does have arms and legs. Grabobby looks kind of like a wobbly starfish. He's just one of the smallest ones. He's like about that big. He likes to play ball games while he's a ball. And what's his name? Invisible guy. You can only see his clothes, and he's invisible, so he doesn't have to wear a lot of clothes. All he wears is boots. He needs the boots to protect his imaginary feet, of course. And then you can all, you can't see the outside, but you can see the inside. So his tongue is on this counts as the inside, so you can see. It. Can you see like what's inside his stomach and stuff? No, because his his invisible skin is covering. Who else is there? Can you tell me a little bit more about some of these guys? This is Fugat, and he's just like this ghost kind of guy, but he's always so happy because he has a big smile. Betcha Boo is kind of like a gun, but he's orange and he shoots yellow bullets. 
but he can chew anything. He can chew ice cream. And the bullets are candy bullets. It matters what you're scared of. Like, if you're scared of weapons, you might be scared of Betchaboo. They're not the kind of people that will go and, like, kill people. And they're not, like, gangsters, but they're, like, just tricksters. If they did that to me, then um, they would be deleted. Because then you don't exist. It's like the only way you can die. Sometimes when I forget about them, they die, but they're not deleted. It's like just falling to sleep for a really long time. And you're like, you're not conscious. Marjorie Taylor's been studying kids like Maxine for more than 15 years, trying to figure out if they're different from other kids. Imaginary friends, when they appear in movies, they tend to be associated with the child who's shy and maybe doesn't have enough real friends or has gone through some kind of trauma, uh, maybe is a little confused about fantasy and reality, all these things. Movies like Donnie Darko, The Orphanage, The Shining. Tony, I'm scared. Remember what Mr. Halloran said? It's just like pictures in a book, Danny. It isn't real. But the kids she looked at seemed perfectly fine. It's not a problem of distinguishing fantasy and reality for these children. They know the difference. They tend to be more social, be less shy. They do better on, on tasks which require you to take the perspective of another person in real life. So uh, we found that they are more creative on some kinds of tasks. Other people have found that their narratives are richer. Taylor and her grad students started with preschoolers, some who had imaginary friends and some who didn't. They would tell them the beginning of a story, and then the child would have to finish it. So we told a story about two children walking in the woods, and they see a key on the path, and they look at each other and say, I wonder if it's magic. And then we turn to the child and say, can you tell us what happens next? Some children will say, well, she took the key and showed it to her mom, uh, and that's the end. Other kids will say, well, the key fits into that door over there in the tree, and you open the door in the tree and you go in and then all kinds of things happened. There's a bunch of snakes. They found that kids with imaginary friends were showing more creativity on tests like this. Taylor got interested in children who invent whole worlds of imaginary friends, paracosms. Whole country or place where children think about all kinds of things like the entertainment, you think about the transportation system, you make coins. There are a lot of artifacts associated with having a paracosm. That's part of the fun. And they have different languages, and they each know every one of them. And my first one is unique, and it's just a bunch of, like, loops. And it's kind of, like, inclusive, but it doesn't really look like letters. or just, like, loops and swirls and stuff like that. And then ta is just lines. It can be squiggly lines and tall lines and short lines and fat lines. And they can just be all kinds of lines. And you can't really speak ta, but they use it for writing. They mostly speak unique in English. It's so tempting to speculate that kids with paracosms, with these very active imaginations, are the future creatives among us, the writers, the artists, the inventors, the geniuses. It feels right. Have you ever thought about what you might want to do when you grow up? Well, I want to be an artist or maybe a musician or something like that. 
but we don't really know. Taylor wants to continue her study to see how the kids do in school and what they achieve as adults. But the kids are 8, 9, 10 years old now, and she'll probably retire before they hit the peak of whatever they do. I'm pretty sure Maxine will be up to something interesting. Have you ever thought about why you have imaginary friends and not everybody else does? I think that some people think it's like little babies and some people like, just don't have them. Some people don't have as good imagination. Sometimes I wish that other people could see my imaginary friends. Who's your favorite? Devil Man. He lives over there. And he lives like everywhere inside the lamp. Right now, he's in there right now. If you want, I can maybe get him out of there because he might want to come out. Hello. <laughs> Actually, you can see that he's a nice person and just that he has all these creepy things in his house. Because you can be nice and like scary things. Do you ever think that you won't have your imaginary friends anymore? I might delete a lot of them, but I'm always going to have Devil Man. I just realized Devil Man went back to the lamp. You can see Maxine's doodles of Devil Man and Betcha Boo and all the rest of them at Studio360.org. Jessica Benko brought us that story with production by Ann Hepperman and original music by Jason Cady. Coming up, She's now almost 60 years old, but... She's kept her figure, first and foremost, and, um, and her hair and her makeup, and she really, she doesn't look a day older. How and why the Barbie doll became an American icon. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. This hour, we're talking about the ways kids play. Sometimes the completely inexplicable ways kids play. One of my most vivid memories as a parent was at the turn of the century when my two daughters, maybe 10 and 11, ceremoniously laid out all their Barbie dolls on a gravel road then had me run over them repeatedly with the car. Here are five of your favorite friends, Barbie, Midge, Skipper, Allen, and Ken. But if you think they're the same as they've always been, you'd better take another look. Better check them again. It was a long time ago, 60 years next March, that the first Barbie appeared. For our series on American icons, Letal Malad looks into how Barbie still looms large in the American psyche. We are so excited to have a play day with Barbies together. We used to have like a giant box of naked Barbies. My favorite Barbie is a Pocahontas. She's like my only Native American Barbie. 
I named her Vanessa. I named her Jennifer. I just don't know why. She has nice eyelashes. They would all take her clothes off, sort of reflexively, like they didn't even know that they were doing it. Is there anything I dislike about the doll? Yeah, it's really hard to get hose on. Barbies are for everybody, boys and girls, teenagers, little kids, everybody, even grown-ups. I played with Barbie even though I was a tomboy. What 10-year-old girl in the 80s could resist Barbie and the Rockers? Barbie and the Rockers. Eventually, my little sister inherited them, along with her 27 other Barbies. One day, I decided she had plenty, and that some of them needed new haircuts. You know, like mohawks. My sister didn't agree. It turns out Shelly's Barbie excess was pretty normal. The average American girl owns 10 Barbies. And every second, two Barbie dolls are sold somewhere in the world. Barbie came in in uh, 1959 and just decimated the other dolls. Susan Stern is the director and writer of the documentary called Barbie Nation. Barbie Nation was prompted by my daughter, who was about three years old at that time. And she had invented this game she called Jealous Barbie. And that's where my doll had to be jealous of her doll because her doll had everything better, better hair, better car, better guy. And I just, you know, this gave me pause. I sat her down. And I gave her, you know, Feminist Lecture 304, which is women don't have to be jealous of other women. And she just looked at me and then said, um, okay, Mom, how about at first we play what I want to play and then we can play what you want to play? And soon I realized that everybody had a Barbie story and they were really about, about us and not about Barbie. Barbie was invented by Ruth Handler. She ran the Mattel company with her husband until the mid-70s. Handler found her inspiration for Barbie when she spotted a doll in a store window in Europe. Its name was Lily. M.G. Lord wrote the book Forever Barbie, the unauthorized biography of a real doll. Lily basically was, um, I'm searching for euphemisms, but German streetwalker is what comes to mind. Lily was a sexy novelty gift for grown men, based on a character in a raunchy comic strip. So why did Ruth Handler think she could sell this doll to American kids? She'd seen her daughter Barbara playing with paper dolls and fantasizing about adult life, something she couldn't do with childlike dolls. So Lily was exactly what Handler had been looking for, a doll with a woman's figure that could beautifully show off grown-up clothes. As pieces of sculpture, Lily and Barbie are so close as to be virtually indistinguishable. In Mattel's early marketing tests, a lot of mothers were uncomfortable with the doll, but girls loved it. M.G. Lord says that the company overcame this by advertising directly to kids on TV and by making Barbie a proper young fashion model. Barbie had the wholesome American girl personality invented for her, and it was kind of perfect for what was expected of women in terms of sexuality at the time when Barbie appeared. Women were expected to look highly sexual, but to comport themselves like these uh, wacky Doris Day virgins in the movies. You know, the... The whole virgin whore complex? Exactly. The tarted-up girl next door. Susan Stern. I'm old enough to have had the original uh, Barbie when she came out in 1959. You know, back in 1959, the only place that a kid ever saw a woman's breasts... um, was in National Geographic. But other than that, Barbie's breasts were were kind of fun and were a revelation. So I found the Barbie doll very sexy and um, liked to dress her up in all the wonderful outfits as well. The outfits really were incredible. 
Ensembles like Gay Parisienne and Roman Holiday were made of cotton, silk, and corduroy with real zippers and linings, matching purses and gloves. I can still feel them in my fingertips, feel playing with those things. But Barbie's wardrobe wasn't just about a life of leisure. There was stewardess Barbie, registered nurse Barbie, student teacher Barbie, and even Miss Astronaut Barbie in 1965. One could very easily make a feminist argument for her. I mean, she was a flight attendant at one point, but then she was also a pilot. Stephen Dubin is a sociologist at Teachers College of Columbia University. The fact that she never got married, I mean, she was, you know, she's like Mary Tyler Moore in that sense. She was a career woman and that she really relished being an independent woman. Certainly in the early 1960s, Barbie was very destabilizing to the middle-class nuclear family. She suggested a whole other way of being in the world to little girls. Um, Her message was very much like that of Helen Gurley Brown's Sex and the Single Girl that came out, I believe, in 1962 which, despite its breathy prose, was very much an anti-marriage manifesto and an argument for women's financial and sexual autonomy. Here I come. But to feminists in the 70s, Barbie represented the stereotype that they were fighting against. The National Organization for Women criticized Mattel for sexist advertising. They passed out leaflets at the 1972 Toy Fair that said Barbie dolls encouraged girls to, quote, see themselves solely as mannequins, sex objects, or housekeepers. Mattel tried things like flattening Barbie's feet in 1970 so that she could wear sensible shoes. But that product failed. Keeping up with the times wasn't that easy, and the 70s were hard on Barbie. But by 1992, the doll was making more than $1 billion a year. Still, a popular girl is easy to hate. Defiling Barbie seems to be a rite of passage for kids and a creative way for grown-ups to make a point. Professor Dubin. Anytime you've got something which seems to solidify what an ideal form is supposed to be, you know, you had Venus de Milo in the past, now you've got Barbie. It's the perfect thing for artists to, to play with. And the fact that gender has become so disputed, particularly in the last 15 to 20 years, it's a gift to artists, in fact. In 1987, Todd Haynes made a movie called Superstar. It was about the singer Karen Carpenter's battle with anorexia. He shot the movie entirely with Barbie dolls as puppets. It may sound silly, but it's actually pretty disturbing. Karen? I think she's coming, too. Karen? Where am I? You're in the hospital, dear. You collapsed on stage. From exhaustion and malnutrition. You'll be here five more days. Then home for plenty of rest. You're going to be under mom's constant care. I'll cook for you. She's going to fatten you up. No more dieting. No more laxatives. And we'll all be together again. I'm dating Barbie. Three afternoons a week, while my sister is at dance class, I take Barbie away from Ken. I'm practicing for the future. That's the novelist A.M. Holmes reading from her story, A Real Doll. It's about an adolescent boy who develops a rather intimate relationship with his sister's Barbie. On the way back to Jennifer's room, I did something Barbie almost didn't forgive me for. I did something which not only shattered the moment, but nearly wrecked the possibility of our having a future together. In the hallway between the stairs and Jennifer's room, I popped Barbie's head into my mouth like lion and tamer. God and Godzilla. I popped her whole head into my mouth 
and Barbie's hair separated into single strands like Christmas tinsel and caught in my throat, nearly choking me. Mattel doesn't like to see Barbie in compromising positions. The company sued the photographer Tom Forsyth for his series called Food Chain Barbie. In the photos, Barbie is posed naked with various kitchen appliances. I was looking at these dolls, very brightly lit, and I'm seeing the lights bouncing off of these perky, huge breasts, and I'm seeing the long legs stretching out and the silly smile that, of course, is just always there. And so I looked at the doll and started to see the impossible sexuality of the doll. In the picture of Barbie enchiladas, a row of Barbies are lying in an oven wrapped up in tortillas and covered with sauce. I put the doll in situations that would be jarring in ways that didn't fit the image Mattel was trying to create for the doll because I felt that was a false image. Forsyth won the case under fair use in federal court. I asked Cassidy Park, Mattel's VP of Barbie Design, what she thought of people who criticized Barbie's unrealistic image. I think that Barbie, first of all, she's not a human form. She is a toy form. We've never meant her to replicate a real-life human form. So I know the inspiration and the work that's done here to make sure that Barbie can represent so many different things for girls. We take that very seriously and always want her to be a good role model for girls. Professor Dubin. I think we always are looking for single explanations for things. It's very easy to blame anorexia, all kinds of problems with children on one thing. Say, look, these kids grew up with Barbie as if if you only got rid of Barbie, then everything would be right. So this idea of you know, a passive audience and these, these huge corporations that are doing these horrible things to us, I, that doesn't wash with me at all. And now we've come to a time when Barbie may not even be sexy enough. M.G. Lord. These Bratz dolls are similar to the early Barbie in that they are broad caricatures of hot females. Who's the hottest princess here? The Bratz debuted in 2001. They've got big heads, tiny bodies, and sassy attitudes. And instead of having one white front woman, the Bratz are a multiracial bunch. Mattel's response? It was time for Barbie to get a little bling. It's my scene, my bling. The new my scene, my bling bling girls are here. Nice bling. Here, wear my ring. Ooh, sparkly. I watched a very revealing play episode involving the Bratz and Barbies playing together. I mean, they had sort of a family of Bratz dolls living in a house, and one of them was on the roof. And uh, when the doll fell off the roof and hurt himself, who did they summon? They summoned Barbie, Dr. Barbie. (laughs) They referred to her as Mrs. Smarty Pants. Barbie is an authority figure now. She's associated with mom who had Barbies. Mom never had Bratz. Sure enough, shortly after the release of the Bratz dolls, Barbie sales took a big dip. After a big legal battle, Mattel won the rights to Bratz. So Bratz and Barbies are now actually cousins. But even with kids changing their tastes, there are still more than a billion Barbie dolls on the planet. Hundreds of years from now, when archaeologists are digging around in in dumps and so on, they're going to find these strange plastic objects that have refused to disintegrate, and they're going to think, what was this? Because this doesn't look like human beings as we knew them at that time. I mean, 
Che Guevara. You know, you don't have to know who he was to wear the T-shirt. Marilyn Monroe, who obviously had a very different body type than is popular today, still has that iconic status. Barbie is here to stay. I, I think there's no doubt that she's here to stay. Maybe 12-year-olds are still playing with Barbie, but secretly, just like I did. At least until you can hand them down to your little sister and then cut off all their hair. Do you remember what I did to your Barbies when I was 14? Yes. So um, have, you, have you ever forgiven me for, for what I did to those dolls? No. Tal Malad produced our story in 2006. Cassidy Park now works at CP Consulting. And that's it for this week's show. But since the giant clock here in the studio says I've got another minute or so to fill, I will use this time to remind you that you can follow the show on Twitter to get updates on stories we're working on and other things we're cavelling and fretting about. On Twitter, we're at Studio360Show. And if you can stand even more, I'm at KB Anderson. That's S-E-N. You can also use that social medium to let us know what you like or don't like about the show. We got a bit of both concerning our recent segment about the ongoing citywide contemporary art triennial in Cleveland called Front. Holly Teichholz tweeted, Thank you, Studio 360, for paying homage to Cleveland's tremendous art scene. Although she lives in New York, she says she's, quote, living in an ongoing one-sided long-distance romance with the amazing city of Cleveland. A Twitter user with the handle at Soma Madman was somewhat less enthusiastic. Quote, Before Kurt Anderson says that Cleveland has no reputation in the arts community, he should extract head from ass. Art museums here are world class. Artists even live here. NYC, artists are primping poseurs, decorating condos for parvenu plutocrats. Wow, quadruple alliteration. But in fact, we praised Cleveland's museums to high heaven and included a couple of conversations with Cleveland artists. But thanks. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is Andrew Adam Newman. Our show was mixed this week by Whitney Jones. Our producers are Evan Chung, Lauren Hansen, Sam Kim, Zoe Saunders, Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is Morgan Flannery. And I am Kurt Anderson. I'm not talking to you. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening. Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360, the fantastic one-of-a-kind vocal group Room Full of Teeth. Live next time on Studio 360.